Hi everyone, it's Tom here. In just a moment, we're going to get into this week's Spiked podcast. I think you can already guess what it will be about. What a remarkable few weeks it's been. I hope everyone out there is staying safe and staying sane. We at Spiked are among the lucky ones. We can more or less carry on doing what we do remotely despite the lockdown. And I know many of our readers and listeners who've been in touch can't. We're going to do our best to keep bringing you comments and analysis uninterrupted and shining a light on this new world we find ourselves in. If you'd like to and can afford to help support us through this period, that of course is hugely appreciated given all that's going on. And as ever, the best way to do so is to become a regular donor. Just £5 per month can can help us continue to do what we do. And if you'd like to sign up, as ever, you can do that at spiked-online.com and clicking on the donate button. Otherwise, be sure to keep reading Spiked every day. We'll continue discussing all the issues around coronavirus and hopefully more and more non-coronavirus issues as well because we all need a break. Thanks so much. Stay well, stay safe. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up today, we'll be discussing the coronavirus lockdown, the need for dissent in the age of COVID and the twitch hunting of COVIDiots. The time has now come for us all to do more. You must stay at home. Can you all go home, please? It's not a holiday, it's a lockdown. It's been called reckless by fellow citizens who've indeed started a hashtag called COVIDiots. Wouldn't you save more lives if you did keep all non-essential workers at home? This week, the UK entered lockdown. The public has been ordered to stay at home to limit the spread of coronavirus and all non-essential shops have been closed. Social life has ground to a halt. The government has also granted itself extraordinary new detention and surveillance powers and Parliament has been suspended. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about how we got here? Well, it's pretty remarkable. It's, It's hard to overstate what a kind of unprecedented situation we find ourselves in at the close of this week. You know, it was only the beginning of last week that you had the UK government in response to the coronavirus crisis um, calling for more kind of voluntary social distancing, telling people to stay away from pubs and restaurants, closing them at the end of last week. And then at the beginning of this week, this huge infringement on people's liberties to the ends, of course, of trying to um, flatten the curve of infections and deaths. So as people in Britain will know, but people outside of Britain, we are now under this lockdown in a situation in which people can only really leave the house for a handful of reasons or if they're a key worker or have to go to work. And what's been so striking about it, I think, is first of all, how quickly all of this has happened. I also think how quickly people, ordinary people have taken it very seriously. You know, there's been this kind of backlash on social media to the small amounts of people who aren't necessarily um, living up to the letter of these new restrictions and these new guidance. But broadly speaking, you know, it's it's north of 90% of people who are supporting this policy. There's been some polling out today from JL Partners suggesting it's very small proportions of people who are just ignoring it entirely. People are taking this very, very seriously. And I think all of that's very encouraging. You know, you're seeing a real social solidarity, a desire to try anything to make sure um, that people are protected. The thing that's concerned me, I think, is the media discussion around it and, and the climate around the announcement, which I think, as Brendan O'Neill wrote on Spike this week, has increasingly had less and less room, it felt like, for any kind of dissent or any just kind of questioning. First of all, in, in the run-up to all of this, it seemed as if the only acceptable 
or worthwhile line of scrutiny in this situation was basically when are we going to lock down as stringently as possible and as soon as possible. That I think concerns me. Not necessarily because these restrictions are wrong. We wait and see. We hope that they're right. But even just, you know, raising some of the adverse consequences of this situation almost seems like a kind of frippery at this point. I think that's quite concerning. And the treatment of people who dare to try and air a different opinion in the face of all of this. You know, Peter Hitchens, of course, over the weekend, wrote a piece in the Mail on Sunday, was just rinsed across social media. David Lammy MP and others suggesting that he was being dangerous and his article should be deleted. He's pretty trenchant, Peter Hitchens, as far as thinking that this is a big mistake. Brendan O'Neill, of course, our editor, writing something in The Spectator, criticising the um, pub closures and getting a similar kind of treatment. And I think we need to be very careful of the sort of road it feels like we're going down in the discussion of these measures. Not necessarily because these measures are wrong. You know, as I say, time will tell. There's not even necessarily the evidence to back things up either way as to the wisdom of lockdowns. But it just really concerns me that anyone who even tries to raise some of these concerns is treated as if they're suggesting, as we've seen on Twitter this week, that, you know, we should just flout the rules entirely. That's not what we're saying at all. Just that when we are in this situation where people are being asked to give up, you know, huge amounts of their day-to-day liberties, that we should still make sure that we're having a very robust discussion about the adverse consequences of this, when it's supposed to end, under what conditions will we be happy when it ends. And I think just going forward, it's really, really important that we bear all of that in mind because we do need to end up with a free society at the end of all of this. Yeah. And, and Tom, you, you mentioned the kind of um, media consensus and that has been one of the really striking features about this. You know, now that we have these um, daily press briefings on coronavirus in the build up to this lockdown, you could see journalist after journalist, particularly, you know, Beth Rigby, journalist from the Mail, journalist from the BBC, just saying that if we don't lock down immediately, the dead bodies are going to pile up. We're going to be yeah. like Italy. The health service is going to collapse and all hell is going to break loose. And there has been no kind of questioning of the wisdom of that. What was one fascinating thing was that, you know, the government has constantly said that it's being guided by the science and in particular in relation as to when it would start a lockdown. It did always kind of communicate that the measures would get stricter and would cease to be voluntary at some point. But it said it, you know, it needed not only to start the lockdown at a time for it to be the most effective in flattening the peak, but also in getting the country to comply. And it seems as if it has come at a time, as you said, that the country is very willing to go along with this. But that kind of dimension just got ignored in the media clamour. It was it was lockdown or nothing. And even now, now that the lockdown is in force, you, you see many in the media complaining that it's not being enforced strictly enough. So it does kind of beg the question, you know, who is going to defend liberty when the time is right, when the time is there to, you know, lift these restrictions? I, I can't see it has many fans <laughs> in the media. Uh, Ella, what are your thoughts? I think part of the problem is that there's been this sort of characterization of the argument for liberty and the argument against the government crackdowns as just kind of, you know, libtards wanting to carry on having their drink and it being this really quite flippant thing when actually the sacrifices that the government has asked the nation to make are, you know, ginormous, um, not just in terms of their work, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but also on the very, you know, not insignificant thing of a social life, um, which to some mm. people is a lifeline. I mean, really can't underestimate how deeply important social interaction is for 
people who have mental health issues, people who are of a certain age who maybe their one trip out to talk to someone is the, you know, the very small part of their day that they get enjoyment from. I mean, even just us as typical young people being able to see your friends and not being able to see them feeling lonely, people who are in relationships, all of this, it's a really big deal. And when faced with the fact that this is something that doesn't necessarily have an end point, there's some kind of vague suggestion from the Prime Minister that this is going to be, you know, a matter of weeks, but again, that's not certain. Suddenly, you have to ask the question, not to <laughs> to quote Trump, perhaps trepidatiously, will the cure end up being worse than the virus? And that's a question that has to be asked because, mm. uh, you know, this is a balancing act. And it, it, I don't really care if I get accused, as I have been several times, of being sort of a horrible, immoral person who wants to put liberties in front of basically mortality, people dying. But there is a question of whether or not these measures, which, as you said, Tom, don't necessarily have the evidence to back up them being justified yet and are more often than not done on a precautionary principle, which you can completely understand, that you suddenly lose all your critical faculties and start treating the prime minister who has only been prime minister for a matter of months like God, basically, who can just do what he wants. I mean, there's there's been, I, I think that's been commendable that a certain amount of political sniping has been put on hold mm. for now. But on the other hand, you know, we have to remember that this is a conservative government. And no, I'm not about to suggest that they're trying to sneak in, you know, a fascist authoritarian rule and that we're all going to be under the Tories' thumb for the next few years. But it is a conservative government and conservative politicians with a certain worldview and a certain political view who are at the forefront of this, not scientists. And that means that at all times, you have to, while, you know, I think, adhering to the measures of social distancing just for common sense purposes, listen to the voice at the back of your head that says, this is political and I should have an, a political opinion on this. And w whether you call it criticism, whether you call it dissent, but not allowing every measure that the government puts in to go through basically carte blanche, because I think that will lead to much bigger problems in the future. Tom? Well, and I think um, this touches on a distinction that's really, really important to draw. Um, and Brendan O'Neill has made this point, which is on the one hand, you know, people should be expected to take this situation seriously, to listen to what's being presented to them, you know, to not just flout the rules because they want to go down the pub. You know, all of that is obviously completely um, ridiculous, that kind of reaction. That's not what we're talking about. The, the clear point is to make sure that there is room for intellectual dissent, for intellectual questioning. And even just to the point of making sure that even if this is the right route to go down, and Norman Lewis made this point on, on Spike this week, even just to make sure that the experts and that the government can make sure that they meet people's concerns, that they meet people's criticisms, that they can sharpen their arguments in public to make sure that people are in it for the long haul, that people are, you know, convinced of the, of the wisdom of this track if this is the one that we're going to go down. It's really, really important. And so this, this climate, which feels increasingly like it's just a competition for who can be the most authoritarian and therefore the most serious. The flip side of it always mm. being this kind of spectre of these idiots who aren't being serious and people just try and morally distinguish themselves from. That is going to be really, really difficult because if we are all in this together, we do need to be able to discuss these things. The more open a discussion you have for that, it doesn't make it weaker, the position or the track that we need to go down. It would actually make it stronger because people would feel that their concerns were being taken seriously. And it just worries me that at the moment, um, it does feel like in some quarters, there's just no room for that kind of thing. 
I mean, one of the, one of the kind of reactions on, on social media in particular has been to basically point and shame people who are perceived to be flouting the rules. You know, the, this hashtag, um, COVIDiots is, is trending. Ella, do you want to? Talk a bit about that. I mean, I think it's been particularly just nasty and there's been a, a huge amount of sort of really unhelpful moralising going on around this about mm. um, basically curtain twitchers having a field day and busybodies who want to tell other people off. Anecdotally, most people who I've spoken to or interacted with have had endless positive stories about how even though people are quite scared, you know, runners will go out on the street to run around people. People are allowing elderly people into the supermarkets before them. You know, not everyone has turned into a monster, but there has been a uh, an underlying quite noticeable class distinction going on here. And I mean, there was sort of formal advice that people were encouraged to use their allotments, for example, and, you know, the the benefits of getting out in the fresh air and um, tending to your purple sprouting broccoli was something <laughs> that was seen as a good thing. And then you've had sort of uh, image after image of people either crowded on the tube or uh, quite more often than not young black men out in the park using the gym equipment, um, often tweeted by journalists who are, and, you know, condemnation being poured on these people. But of course, not everyone has a bloody allotment. And so people are going out and sort of getting the fresh air that they need and trying not to go stir crazy in the house. And there's been some, you know, it, I think part of this has revealed some nasty prejudices among certain sections of society and certainly among those who are most prolific on Twitter, sort of pointing the finger and saying, oh, yeah, you COVID idiots or you, you know, don't listen to the science, you don't listen to the experts. And obviously, all of us are thinking, well, where have we heard this before? Um, <laughs> you know, where has this strain in society come from? We've been dealing with this kind of prejudice for years now. We know it. It's, it's shown itself to be in its naked form over the last few years. But particularly, I think, the pointing the finger at people, especially when, for the example of the tube, most of them are, you know, people who are cleaners or s some kind of self-employed job that they can't do anything other than go on the tube or else they face essentially starvation or being kicked out of their houses. So yet again, you have the kind of moralising Twitter mob revealing their own prejudice and painting a horrible picture of society when in fact, most of us, ordinary people out on the street you meet, are actually taking this pretty well and are maintaining either just a, their sense of humanity or also a heightened sense of their sort of um, need to be social and and think socially. So I'm I'm not worried about what this is going to say about your fellow man, really. I think that most people are doing a good job. There is obviously a real hypocrisy sometimes in, in a lot of this criticism where, you know, a journalist will turn up at the park and get angry at other people for being at the park, you know, as if they have a God-given right to be there and, and nobody else does, and that their reasons for occupying public space are legitimate, whereas other people are flouting the rules and, and are dangerous spreaders of disease. It was interesting also to see in, in relation to this COVID-19 stuff that there was a major panic over the past few weeks around panic buying. And one of the things that has fueled the panic over coronavirus has been pictures of empty shelves. And we've all experienced that ourselves when we've been to the shops. But there was a really great thread by uh, Greg Callis from the Financial Times, um, where he pointed out that actually, you know, the supermarket takings only went up by about 10% which is actually pretty small in relation to the fact that millions of people who will have been, you know, 
eating out two or three times a week suddenly have to find their meals from home. You know, you've got the whole, basically every school child is now not getting a school meal at school and is going to be eating at home. So actually, you know, even the idea of, apart from a few idiots, of course, the vast majority of people have not been panic buying, mm. the, the figures would suggest. But still, you know, we like to point the finger, we like to moralise. And also, I mean, the, uh, the other argument is that if the government is putting out a message that you've got to stay in your house, that leaving the house for anything non-essential, you're going to turn into this sort of almost quasi-murderous super spreader, then it's completely reasonable for people to, when they go to the shop, think, right, I'm not going to be able to get here for possibly weeks. I better pack in everything I need for myself and my family. So, you know, there's the kind of people moralising about this. And then there's the reality, even myself, you know, you, you don't want to go be going multiple trips to the shops if you believe the government's advice, which is that every time you go and fondle the packet of biscuit that you're potentially spreading the virus to someone else. So, you know, you can see as as selfish stockpilers and hoarders on the one side, you can also see it as people taking the government's advice and making sure that they're well provided for if the case is that in the next, you know, who knows, in the next few weeks, we could be sort of under police coordinating. I mean, it's not outside of the realms Mm. of possibility, given the steps that we've taken in the last week. So, you know, I tend to think that people are being kind of set, you know, yes, lots, some people are going in and buying up every bloody toilet roll in sight. And you do think, you know, diarrhea isn't a symptom of coronavirus. (laughs) But on the other hand, I think people are being relatively sensible. Just to sort of add something to that is, it's also that it's, People, this is brand new, right? And I think people can downplay how quickly this has taken place. People are trying to work out what the rules are. You know, all of those images from the weekend of people walking up and down the seaside or whatever. You know, most of these people were just trying to take advantage of the sun whilst trying to distance themselves as much as possible. You know, there's, there is a kind of rush to judgment going on. And it feels like so much of this is purely about people. It's often journalists because these are often people that we follow and see uh, making these kinds of denunciations. You know, it just feels like this is mainly driven by trying to distinguish yourself from these idiots more than anything else. You know, footage of people on the green at Shepherd's Bush, you know, lying down in the sun, actually pretty a fair distance apart, the police showing up to break them up and everyone being like, these idiots, even though they really can't have been doing harm to anyone if they were that (laughs) spread out. There just seems to, you know, any kind of sense of proportion has gone out the window because for a small amount of people who, who are particularly influential on social media and in the media, it just feels like they love to obsess about these kind of instances just purely because they see in it what they probably thought going into this which is that people are a bit stupid a bit selfish and can't possibly take this seriously despite the fact that the polling we've seen the public response we've seen has overwhelmingly been wanting to take this very very seriously indeed so it just feels like other things are kind of driving that kind of response and the other thing which i guess we should um note at this point coming back to that question of kind of what impact this is having on all of our civil liberties is this week the passing of the coronavirus bill which i think people need to take very very seriously indeed this has handed extraordinary powers to the government to restrict people's liberties over the course of this now of course in ter- times of crisis there are always going to be justifications for taking on these kinds of powers but what we're looking at is very very stark and needs to be taken very, very seriously indeed. You know, you have the police and immigration officials and even public health officials um, empowered to detain people who are not only necessarily actually have coronavirus, but are suspected of having coronavirus as powers to um, break up all forms of different kinds of gatherings, not necessarily even 
any solid exemptions for things like political protest. There's things in there around actually loosening some of the safeguards around surveillance warrants and emergency warrants. All of this is really, really important. We've started to see today, haven't had a chance to absorb it yet, but some of the enforcement powers police will have in relation to this clampdown, the kinds of fines that can be meted out. And I think this is something that's worth focusing on just because I don't think there has been the right amount of scrutiny, really, or even public discussion of these powers. They were kind of pushed through Parliament at a pretty breakneck speed. There were some kinds of concessions made. There is now going to be this kind of six-month review, but that doesn't doesn't really seem to be particularly tough. And this is something which I think is really worth people's attention just because even though we completely understand that restrictions on our liberties in times of crisis is obviously going to have to take place at certain points, but what is the legacy of this legislation going to be past this crisis? You know, what kind of oversight, what kind of scrutiny do we have over these powers? Because we really haven't seen anything like this handed to the government in peacetime. Um, and it just feels like there hasn't been nearly enough discussion about that yet. We've seen an extraordinary amount of power accrued to the state in in recent weeks and and as has been suggested this kind of coronavirus bill represents the largest transfer of power to the state in you know in peacetime history but there is also some good news of the public stepping up to do their bit so when the government put out a call for volunteers to help with the NHS to help vulnerable people with their shopping but also to help out on the front line more than 500,000 people signed up within the first 24 hours so Ella, I want to put this to you has there been a kind of more positive side to this in, in in terms of the way communities have responded and you know individuals have responded i think we always most of us thought that this could go either way and in some ways it is going both ways because i worry about the fact that even though it seems sensible people are flinching from each other on the street you know turning away from each other because you're not meant to have contact for more than two meters and you do wonder how society is going to recover from this kind of mass isolation but actually On the other hand, people are really stepping up to the plate and whether, yes, there was the official call out for volunteers, but actually mutual aid groups and, you know, street-wide WhatsApps and people going out and leafleting and, you know, so many different kinds of individual, if you like, grassroots action has been taking place for weeks now in a way that's incredibly heartening. Even things like, you know, small things, like there's this sort of nationwide plea for everyone to lean out of their windows tonight at eight o'clock and clap for the NHS and carers. I mean, there's a huge amount of goodwill, I think, that is definitely to be celebrated. Most people, I think, are taking this quite seriously and checking in with their neighbours and actually becoming more sociable. I mean, the interesting thing is, once you're confined to the walls of your house, suddenly your world gets a lot smaller and your sort of remit is from your house to the shops to perhaps the local park. And so you start to notice people more and you start to actually talk more often to people, even if it's at a two metre distance. (laughs) So I think that I would always just push to take the the positive, anti-misanthropic, as it were, view of this, which is that I think whether it's because of the need to be more friendly or it's a desire to act on our better kind of human nature, I think that this is going to prove to us that despite all the fear-mongering about how awful sheeple can be and all those stereotypes over the last few years, actually most people are not just good-hearted but will actually do something to help their fellow man. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.